It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. And the Orioles have won the game. They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy. They're jumping on each other. One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see. And welcome to it. Thanks for being with us here on Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite, our post-draft edition. Coming up, Jim Callis from MLB Network and MLBPipeline.com, hours after their coverage has wrapped up. And Jeff Arnold, uh, the Orioles get some new prospects on that farm. They picked Heston Kerstad with the number two overall selection. It was something that our colleague Ben McDonald uh, was on. He thought that might be able to happen. A lot of time for Ben covering the SEC. You heard Kersad's name rumored. Uh, initially, I was pretty darn surprised, but I think I'm, I'm pretty excited about him from some of the folks that I've, I've gotten to talk to. Not a whole lot of pitching. That was the other takeaway from the draft. I certainly thought day two at pick number 39, that's where the Orioles were going with a number of guys on the board. And Kersad, you imagine being an underslot sign. So, uh, but instead they decided to go the position player route, get a couple of exciting high school players at the very end of day two. And, and overall that, that farm stock looks to be a little bit richer right now. I would say so. So let's get into it. Uh, Jim Callis on the Orioles 2020 draft. And as we are recording right now on Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite, uh, someone who has probably not slept much in a week or two of MLB Network and MLBPipeline.com fame, Jim Callis on the 2020 draft for the Baltimore Orioles. Jim, we know that background all too well over the last half of the last <laughs> few days. Yeah, it's, it's been on MLB Network uh, probably more than ever before uh, with uh, the little unusual circumstances this year. Uh, after we get done with this podcast, I think I've got about an hour or so to pack up. I have like four or five cases of camera and lighting equipment uh, in front of me that you can't see right now. But uh, yeah, it's uh, spent an awful lot of time uh, in this position uh, the last two or three days. Well, as we are recording right now, we don't know about all the the signs and and the post-draft signs uh, that are are coming. But for a a moment, let's assume the Orioles sign all of their picks, including uh, the two high school kids that they got, the totality of the draft What's your reaction to it for the Orioles? Um, I think it was a very good draft. Um, I mean, again, it should be. We should be saying that because they had the number two pick. They had an extra choice. They had the highest bonus pool. Um, Every year we do stories. It's usually me for MLB.com. Who had the best draft, you know, as soon as it's over. And it's always the teams with the high picks and the extra picks, and Orioles had both. But, um, But, no, I mean, that said, uh, I, I thought they had a very strong draft. I mean, they got six guys. I think, um, I think all six of them were on our top 200. Um, not that that's the be all and end all, but they were all ranked by us, all highly regarded, um, all in our top 132, actually. Um, and just to touch on the thing you said, I do think 
there will probably be a couple guys who don't sign, but, but signability always matters even in a normal draft. Last year, only two guys in the first 10 rounds didn't sign. So my assumption is unless guys fail physicals or maybe one or two guys got taken without parameters set, that the vast, vast majority of players, not just by the Orioles, but taken in the draft in the five rounds are going to sign. I, I just don't think teams are gambling too much on signability when you only had five or six picks in this year's draft. Heston Kerstad was the Orioles' first pick, number two overall selection, and there was some mention of his name when it came to uh, some options that the Orioles might go to with that pick. Most people thought it was going to be Austin Martin from Vanderbilt. When the Orioles announced Heston Kerstad with that selection, uh, what was your level of surprise? Yeah, it's weird because nobody usually comes out and tells you, hey, we're definitely doing this. You know, especially, you know, maybe you sometimes with number one pick, you have certainty because they're picking number one and then get their guy. With Austin Martin, I thought it was going to be Austin Martin, but I never fully bought into it. I felt like it was like 55% Austin Martin, 45% they take somebody else and maybe save some money and, and do some damage later in the draft. Although I kept telling people, you have to take who you think the best player is. You know, everybody knows when Mike was with the Astros, they took Carlos Correa, they signed him for $4.8 million, and they let him get Lance McCullers. But what people don't realize, that was like the perfect case scenario for the Astros in that even though Carlos Correa kind of was like a late riser in the draft, if he doesn't go number one, he was going number two to the Twins. And frankly, his agent messed that up. Like his agent took less money. Like thought, his agent thought he was going to the Cubs at six. And so that was kind of a perfect storm. It's not that easy to just take, a, you know, a really good player at the top and cut a deal um, in those cases. Um, I feel a little bit bad for Heston Kerstad, although I've liked the quotes I've seen out of him because I think a lot of it has been asking, like, hey, you're not Austin Martin. What happened here? And, you know, did you think you were going this high? And he kind of had a little chip on his shoulder about it. And, you know, I think, you know, I, somebody asked me about this on Twitter and, and not to make fun of Pastor's fix, but I said, this is not Matt Hobgood. This is not a guy who – people thought was going at the end of the first round that they jumped up. I mean, there are a lot of teams interested in Heston Kerstad. The Blue Jays were interested. I mean, the, the Royals were interested in Heston Kerstad at four. I, I think seven, eight, nine with the Pirates, Potteries, and, and Rockies were all on him hard. This is a guy, he had the best left-handed power in the draft. Um, he has a great track record in the SEC from day one as a freshman. And with Team USA, SEC is the best college league in the country. So there really wasn't much more he could have proven at that level. Um, I think he – from, you know, the, the, the power is what draws you in the most, but he can hit too. And I think while he's not, you know, he's not going to be a center fielder or a 30-30 guy or anything like that, he was a little quicker. He looked a little better in the outfield this year. And so he's a legit guy. And, and my understanding was the Orioles liked Austin Martin, but I don't think they loved, loved him and felt like he was slam dunk, the number two guy in the draft. And I think they weighed their options and – you know, I don't know what their internal board was if, if Austin Martin was actually number two. Um, but whatever it was, I think they had a group of guys who were closely clustered, Austin Martin, Kerstad, maybe Nick Gonzalez, maybe even Zach Veen. All these guys went, you know, towards the top of the round. And I think if they, if they thought they were all close together, then they probably did the right thing by figuring, okay, like what's maybe the most advantageous deal we can cut with one of these guys if we think they're all comparable talents. So um, I feel a little, like I said, I feel a little bad for Heston Kerstad because I think a lot of reaction was like, whoa, that's not Austin Martin. What just happened? And I know on, on our MLB network broadcast, Dan O'Dowd said he thought Austin Martin was the best player in the whole draft, even better than Spencer Torkelson who went one. But, but this is – Heston Kerstad was, was a very worthy 
you know, top five type of pick. And I think by taking him, it allowed them to do some damage later in the draft. Very long answer there. It's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we had Mike Elias on the other day, and he really, before the draft, dismissed the idea uh, of trying to, you know, gamble with the second pick. He said, the only way you're doing that is if you feel they are equal or you secretly like the other guy more. Uh, the reaction, of course, is when you see all the mocks, if you're the, a fan, is Martin, 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 and then anything that deviates from that is kind of a shock. But when you kind of delve into the power of potential and you look at the Orioles system and how hard that is to kind of get, uh, it kind of adds up in that way. I mean, if you really look at the Orioles system, there are a lot of guys, but how many guys could one day hit 30 plus? No, that's true. And, 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 and just with Martin, while like he kind of, I think it was the consensus number two prospect in the draft, he wasn't everybody's number two prospect in the draft. I actually had done a story where I was comparing Torfs and Martin talked to like 34 GMs and scouting directors, cross checkers. And there were guys who, who didn't think Austin Martin was, was clearly the second best player in the draft. You know, he had some throwing issues this spring. There's some questions on his position. So I, I, I definitely think, like you said, I think the public perception was that, you know, Torkelson was one, Martin was two, and then there was everybody else. And I just don't think every team felt that way. Um, and I, I think it was more, I mean, <laughs> we're not going to get to see the Orioles board. It would be curious to see exactly how they have the guys lined up in order. But um, I, my sense was that it was close to 50-50. I went with my gut and went Austin Martin. So I was I was surprised. I mean, the name you had heard more was Nick Gonzalez, maybe, if they cut a deal, a little bit more than Kerstad. But again, I, I, I don't know how they lined the players up, and I think they're, they're somewhat comparable. Kerstad had the most incentive to cut a deal because if he didn't, you know, there was a chance he could have wound up going ninth or, or maybe even tenth. Like, he could have gone seventh to the Pirates also. Um, so I, I think the, it was a very strategic pick. And what Mike said is absolutely correct. The talent, you, you obviously have to look at the signability, but the ability is what matters most. You, you can't get cute when you're picking at number two. You have to take a guy you think belongs at that pick. From a defensive standpoint, how would you analyze where, where Kerstad is, do you, you know, and, and, and what, what does he bring to the table from, from that side of the field? Yeah, it's kind of, you know, 45 to 50 speed on the 2080 scouting scale. I mean, he was quicker this year. I mean, if you wanted to give him, you know, average, you could. You know, I mean, I think it just depends on what kind of times you get on him. You know, so he's not a center fielder. He's got solid arm strength. So I think he's just your, he's your prototypical red fielder that, you know, has a solid arm and huge power and, and he gets to it. You know, his, he's got like – it's not the smoothest swing if you watch him, but he has really good timing at the plate and he makes it work. And, and again, I mean, not that you're – they didn't draft him off of stats, but like in terms of like resumes and track record, I mean, his is right there with anybody's. Like, you know, like I said, he, he went in from day one to Arkansas, which is a top-level program, almost won the national championship a couple of years ago, and, and played from day one, set their freshman home run record, and is hit from power – you know, basically since he got there. So it's like, you, you know what you're getting. I mean, I, I think he has a chance. You, know, you guys mentioned 30-plus. Yeah, he's 30-plus home runs, I think, is, is easy to say. And, and I also think there's a high floor with this guy. Like, you know, I mean, at worst, you're probably getting like a 260-20 home run guy. Um, that, that, to me, is his floor. That's a pretty high floor. I mean, I, I know that doesn't sound great if Orioles fans are like, wait a minute, 260 with 20 home runs. I'm saying that's – kind of the minimum I would have expected out of him. I, I think that's the safety net, and I think, he, I think he will be better than that. All right, let's move on in this Orioles draft with the uh, 30th overall pick. Uh, the, they took a shortstop from Mississippi State, Jordan Westberg, uh, someone that many say is a really great athlete, uh, another SEC player. Jim, your thoughts on him? 
Yeah, you know, with Westberg, you know, again, our guy with track record. Um, he's an offensive middle infielder. You know, it's power over hit. He gets a little aggressive at times. So I think he's more of a – he's going to give you power than, than maybe hit 280 or 300. But, I mean, this could be a 20-plus home run shortstop. Um, I think he can stay there. Um, it, it's solid speed, solid arm strength. You know, it's possible, you know, if you have a really good defensive shortstop, then maybe you move him to third. He's a bigger guy, you know, 6'3", 203. But he moves, he moves pretty well for his size. I mean, you're, you're looking at a guy here who – Ah, guys don't really steal bases anymore, but like, you know, he might be like a 20 home run, 10 to 15 steal guy, and, and, you know, play shortstop. And I do think he's got enough pop that, that his bat profiles at third base if he winds up having to move. To me, one of the, the other real surprises was what the Orioles did with their third selection, Hudson Haskin, because I think, I mean, I know I did, and I'm, I think a lot of other people figured the Orioles would go pitching at 39 with a, a lot of really good arms still out there. Um, they, they go with Haskin instead. Were, was that unexpected for you? Did you think the Orioles were going to go pitching once they had that first pick of day two? Yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, I mean, you never know for sure, but that would have been my guess. I, I thought, you know, there were, there were some good college arms. College pitching was its strength this draft. There were some good college arms that didn't make it um, in, into the first day just because there weren't enough spots. And there were also some interesting high school arms two or three of the best high school pitchers were still on the board too. So yeah, that, that was my thought was, was that they would probably go that way. Um, you know, Haskin was interesting because I was a little surprised he didn't get more buzz in the spring. Like when we do our rankings, we had him ranked 74th and the Orioles drafted him 39th. But when we do our rankings, it's not just, Hey, we saw this or we heard this talking to scouts. We try to build a consensus of what the industry thinks. So on paper, I thought he was a guy initially they should rank higher, and I, and I heard he was moving up. So we actually had him higher, and then we got some feedback. I was like, oh, we don't think he's going to go you know, quite that good. And I actually think what it was is there just wasn't a lot of track record on him because he's a sophomore eligible. So he basically played one full season of college and four weeks of games this year. Um, you know, didn't play in the Cape Cod League last year. But he, but he played well in the New England Collegiate Baseball League, which is one of the better summer leagues. It's not the Cape. I, I just think if he – you know, I mean, he obviously still went pretty good. But let's say he'd been at the, in the SEC instead of at Tulane, and if he had played in the Cape instead of in the New England League, and if he had gotten a full season to show what he can do instead of really one season, then I think we probably would have ranked him higher. There would have been more consensus about him because this guy's got tools. I mean, he's got – you know, his swing can get long, but he barrels the ball. He's got bat speed. He's got loft. He's a plus runner. I mean, this could be a 2020 guy. He controls the strike zone pretty well, too, so you feel like he's going to get to most of his offensive talent. I think he plays in center field. Um, I don't think there's really any question about him staying there. Um, so it's a really good – I mean, you don't usually get college players with those kind of tools, you know, 39 picks into the draft. They usually go better than that. Jim, the Orioles also drafted another uh, shortstop in the third round from the SEC, Anthony Servideo. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And, uh, you know, a lot of fans will look at this draft, and I think more were tuned in this year than, than normal for obvious reasons, and they'll see the redundancy of outfield and shortstop. And, and, and those who really follow the system know, you know, the Orioles have a couple of guys who are, you know, that they've talked about, like an Adam Hall, uh, who's had some good minor league seasons, seems to be rising. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, a lot of these guys can move around the infield, and that's what Elias says, that, you know, you get a shortstop, that guy can move. Uh, but when you look at these two shortstops, how would you separate these two for one? And uh, tell us about this young player. 
Yeah, I think they're different. And I think what Mike says is true. I mean, you're just trying to build inventory. Like, no, I've been, nobody ever has a situation where they have too many players and it's a bad thing. I mean, you trade them in that case. Or, you know, you have guys who maybe you have a utility man who's good enough to start, you know, like, you know that type of thing. You know, Servidia is a lot different than Westburg, even though they were, you know, rival schools in the SEC, Old Miss, Mississippi State. You know, Westburg, you know, like I said, it's power over hit. Servideo's hit over power, although he, he showed some surprising power this year. Um, he had a – I'm looking here in ops of about 1270 um, and played really well left on – he was a lefty hitter against Reed Detmers, a Louisville lefty who went 10th overall. Um, he's faster than Westberg. I think he's a better defender at shortstop than Westberg. Like, if, they, if those were your two starters, if, then Servideo would push Westberg to third. He, he doesn't have the track record. He really, really struggled in the Cape Cod League with wood bats last year. Um, he played second base. Um, I actually think he's better than the guy who was shortstop, you know, Gray Kessinger, um, who, who was a second-round pick by the Astros last year. Um, I think Servideo is a more talented defender, but, but Gray was the shortstop. And Servideo played second base, and he was kind of a light hitter, and he kind of came out of nowhere. I, I was curious to see where he was going to go in the draft because he did get off to a hot start, but they hadn't really gotten into conference play yet. He hadn't really proven himself in the SEC. You know, it's interesting. I, I think you could – argue both ways really that if he got into SEC play and he had a good year he probably goes in the second round and I think you could say he was off to such a hot start I, I don't think he was going to carry 1270 ops all year and that if he'd struggled in the SEC some he might have lasted another round so you kind of had to figure out what you really thought of him because you, you really you, your history of Anthony Servideo as an offensive force is four weeks this year um, but I, I do think even if he's not you know I, I don't think he's going to be you know, like a guy you're, you know, who's put up those huge numbers in pro ball. But I do think he has the tools to be a regular. He's more of an on-base guy than a power guy. Um, he, he, like I said, he's got speed, so he can steal some bases when he gets on. And he plays a really nice shortstop. So to me, what I like about this pick is you could see a scenario where he becomes a big league regular at shortstop. And let's say the bat, you know, doesn't have as much impact as you hope for. The guy's good enough defensively, and he can do enough things that I, that I think he's a really good utility man. Like, like there's no reason this guy couldn't play – all over the infield. And, and really, I mean, if he was in a utility role, he runs well enough. I'm sure he could track balls in the outfield too. So there's some upside with this pick. If the gains we saw offensively were real, and there's also a pretty good floor here because I think he can definitely play all over the diamond if you want him to. When you look at the Orioles' fourth selection that they made, some early reports had right, right after the draft being over that uh, Kobe Mayo was going to go way over what he was supposed to be slotted into getting at his, his fourth selection. Um, he's somebody that, that when you look at maybe some savings from the early rounds, um, a, a guy that the Orioles really wanted, what can you tell us about Kobe Mayo? Yeah, he, he's, I mean, he, he's an upside guy. I mean, he, there, there's a little bit more risk with him, but, but there's a lot of upside there too. I mean, he's 6'5", 215, right-handed hitter, a lot, of, a lot of raw power, you know, one of the strongest arms in, in the high school class in, in this year's draft. So he's got those two tools for third base. You know, there's some question, you know, there's mixed reports on, you know, swing and miss. You know, is he going to make enough contact to get to a lot of that power? Um, you know, does he move well enough at third to stay there? His feet and hands are just okay. You know, he gets compared. Jonathan Mayo mentioned this on, on the MLB Network broadcast last night. He gets compared to Austin Riley with the Braves, and I think that's a good comparison. You know, it's power over hit. It's a big arm. But there's some questions as to whether, you know, he, he's – you know, going to really stay at third base. So I, I like that parallel. Um, and it's an upside play. And, you know, and I think, you know, I've, I've seen the reports too that he's going to get, you know, considerably over slot, you know, maybe a million, more than a million dollars over slot. 
And the idea would be, you know, obviously looking at this draft that you saved money with Heston Kerstad and, and some of that money is going to go to Kobe Mayo and some of that's going to go to the fifth rounder too. And that fifth rounder, right-handed pitcher uh, from Dowling Catholic High School, Carter Baumler. Uh, tell us about this uh, young man. Yeah, that, you know, I'll say that pick surprised me. Um, not because I think it's a bad pick by any means. We actually had him ranked at 102 and he, and he went 133. I, I just didn't think he was signable. I mean, he, he's, he's a projectable high school pitcher. Those are the guys who were hurt more by the coronavirus because you didn't really get a chance to see with everything getting shut down, if they were going to get stronger, if their stuff was going to get better, you know, how they were going to develop this year. And he pitched once this spring, and it wasn't a very good outing. I don't think anybody held that against him, but it, it certainly didn't help his cause. And he was a big-time commit to TCU. I mean, I, I had guys tell me, like, you know, I think he's got, like, TCU license plate holder on his car and TCU stuff all over his house. And guys really liked him. But, I mean, the impression was, like, it's going to be really tough to sign him away from TCU. And, but yet, this could be a guy who three years from now, we're all going to be saying, oh, we should have paid Carter Baumler rather than to go to TCU and really develop. Because he's, he's 6'2", 195. He's super athletic. He, he, had, he was on a state championship football team as a junior as a kicker and, and a punter. And he even drew, I mean, college football interest. That's how good he was as a kicker and a punter. Um, and, you know, he's 90, 94. You know, curveball can be inconsistent, but shows flashes. Um, he shows some feel for a change. But what guys really like is just such a clean, athletic delivery and arm action. So you feel like this guy's going to stay healthy and throw a lot of strikes. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, it's – I haven't counted them up. But, like, when we rank players, we're ranking them based on long-term talent, not necessarily signability. And so when we looked at, after the draft's over – and the guys who didn't get drafted or in a normal year in a four-year-round draft, the guys who got drafted real low and aren't going to sign. Like, I'd say if I looked at that list right now, probably 10 or 12 of the top 15 guys would be projectable high school pitchers, um, like Carter Baumler. And, and so to see one taken in the fifth round really threw me. Um, but like I said at the top, I just don't think, and, and, and you know, Orioles had six picks that you're, you're trying to waste – six picks because you know Orioles obviously need a lot of talent and they only got six guys, shots to draft guys they'll I assume sign some $20,000 free agents too but it's not a normal year where you're going to sign 30 guys out of the draft you want to make all the picks count and, and just the fact they took Kerstad and like I said you know he's probably going seven to nine so they, they saved some money there I think they sign him uh it would be my guess um that you would sign Carter Bombler here the only pitcher that the Orioles decided to pick in the entire draft uh, does this kind of confirm that the approach going forward is going to be you draft positional talent and then maybe you go out and, and sign some other some other pitchers later or trade for, for other pitchers later? Is, is that kind of the approach based on that previous Houston-Chicago kind of example? Maybe. I mean, you know, I think Houston had some advantages that Baltimore doesn't in that. I think Houston valued some things in pitchers that maybe other people didn't see and they were able to – you know, cut a good deal for Charlie Morton and, and, you know, get a Will, Will Harris and a Colin McHugh and, and change some things and, and, and get, you know, value out of them. I don't know if that's as easy to do today because I think more teams are on that same page. I honestly think, I honestly think, and you guys may have talked to Mike and he may have answered about this already. I think they just took the best guy on the board when they picked. I don't think they necessarily looked at it like, hey, we're going to come, we're going to go position player heavy. And, you know, we'll get pictures from other sources. I think they just took the best guy on the board when their picks came up. And, and I do think that's the way to do it. I mean, look, the Orioles don't have a good big league team right now. They're in a tough division. 
know, the farm system is getting better, but it's going to take some time. So I think at this point you just get whoever you think the best players are. And, and, you know, and then when you get ready to contend, maybe you fine tune it a little bit or, you know, target guys and trades or whatever, but you know, you can't, it's tough. Pitching's tough in the draft because it's so volatile. A lot of guys get hurt um, and don't pan out. It's just the nature of pitching. But you also can't run away from pitching, and I don't think the Orioles did. Um, because if you do that, I mean, I mean, there are some pitching success stories in later rounds, but like a lot of the best pitchers in baseball were, were high picks. And if you don't draft them, you don't get a shot at them, and, and, you know, unless you have something really good to give up in a trade. So I, I don't – I don't know that I necessarily think that they're going away from pitchers or, you know, or they're going to look to acquire them from other avenues. I just think that, you know, and, and I like teams that have conviction that when they were picking, you know, like, like we all, like we were saying, I, I thought they were going pitcher at 39, but I think they really liked Hudson Haskins. So they took Hudson Haskins. Um, you know, so it, it's kind of interesting. I, I, but I do think this was just, Hey, these are the best guys and this is who we took. It is fascinating because you look at last draft and it was, Heavy college positional talent, with the exception of Gunnar Henderson in there. And then eventually later in the draft, in the more of the middle rounds, they went uh, with some college pitching. But it is fascinating. And several GMs ago now, you know, Andy McPhail, uh, he, his whole mantra here, and it did set the stage for five years of, of winning here, was buy the bats and grow the arms. And you saw that uh, in the draft as well and through a lot of the trades that were made. But uh, it's just an interesting if this is a strategy, and he hasn't actually announced this as a strategy, but it's fascinating. Uh, Jim, big picture now, uh, with two drafts for Michael Elias, uh, we'll see what the international signing periods bring, and we've already had one, and he's worked some trades, and, and obviously inherited a team that was going to get the first pick, and inherited a team that did a purge, and already started kind of adding some, some talent uh, to the system, and we'll see how those trades work out long term. But if you really take a step back and look at the top 10, 20, 30 here. I'm just going to read off, you know, a list here. Rutschman, Grace Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, Heston Kerstad, Ryan Mountcastle, Austin Hayes, Jordan Westberg, Dean Kramer, Michael Bauman, Zach Lowther. And even in that next group, I mean, when you look at Diaz, Henderson, Aiken, Harvey, I mean, those would have been the top 10 of the Orioles of old. And now they're shuffling back 15, 20, 20 plus in, an, in a typical, you know, top 10 or 30 ranking that you would come up with. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely think their sisters on the upswing. I mean, obviously, it helps when you have the number one pick and the number two pick, and you, and you add Natalie Rutschman and a Heston Kerstad. Um, but, you know, there's depth, too. Like, like you, you, you touched on Gunnar Henderson, and, you know, I think he gets overshadowed because he's in the same draft with Adley. Um, but guy, I like Gunnar Henderson a lot last year. I think he's a really interesting guy. Just like I think a lot of folks on Heston Kerstad, but, you know, there were some teams that, you know, Jordan, I mean, Jordan Westbrook was only one pick out of going in the true first round, but like, I mean, you know, he was a first round pick for some teams, you know, Hudson Haskin, like I said, I, I think he guys knew who he was. I, I just think they didn't have as much track record with him, but I mean, those are tools that, that, that stack up with some of the guys that went in the first round too. So I, I do think they have more depth than they, than they've had. And, you know, with the Grayson Rodriguez pick, you know, a lot of people were surprised he went quite that high, you know, especially being a high school right-hander and there were other more highly touted high school right-handers in that draft. And he looks like a great pick too. And, and, you know, DL Hall, I mean, you kind of get a, nice, a really nice nucleus of potential, you know, super impact players and also some depth as well. The $20,000 signs are still the hardest thing to predict. I mean, nobody seems to know uh, how it's going to go. If, if you're a team and you're, you're signing $20,000 players and 
how much value can you add to your organization um, from from going out and, and trying to tap into that market? Yeah, I mean, I guess some of it's going to depend on how many of these guys sign. And, you know, I keep saying this statistic. Last year, there were 395 players who got six-figure bonuses after the fifth round, who, who obviously couldn't do that this year because there's a $20,000 cap on non-drafted guys and, and only a five-round draft. And the vast majority of those guys are college juniors. And I, I do think some of those guys will sign. Like, I'm – I don't know if it'll be 100 out of that 395 or 150. I, I think it's unfortunate those guys can't get more money because they use that money to pay off college loans and kind of to survive when they're not making any money in the minor leagues. But at the same time, I mean, who knows what college baseball is going to look like? Most of these guys aren't on full scholarships in college. Almost nobody is. Um, you know, the economy's bad. Maybe paying for another year of college that you weren't planning on is going to be tough. Um, we're going to have fewer minor league teams, it looks like, next year. Um, so there may not be opportunities. It's only a 20-round draft next year. If everybody goes back, that draft's going to be jammed with guys who would have gone around 6 or 20 this year, guys who, who will go or would have gone 6 or 20 next year. They all can't get drafted. Draft might get reduced even more from 20 rounds to, to say, 10. Um, so I do think some of these guys will sign. Like, like if you went to college and your, your career goal was to play pro ball, you should probably take $20,000 because going back, you're going to be a year older and teams look at age. And yeah, you'll, you know, guys will retain the same eligibility. So if you were a junior this year, you'll be a junior next year, but you'll be like a 22, 22 and a half year old junior next year. And teams don't, don't pay or value 22 year old players in the draft very much. Um, so to me, if your dream is to play pro ball and you get offered $20,000, again, it's, it, it sucks. <laughs> that, that's, that's what your, your cap is. But if you get off of $20,000 and they can give you scholarship play money to pay for the rest of your schooling, um, if, if you go back at some point, I think some guys are going to take it. Um, I'll, I'll be curious. Like I said, I don't – I feel like the number's higher than what the agents think it'll be right now. I think it's kind of the shock for some guys that they didn't get drafted is still settling in. So, like, maybe 100 of those guys will sign or 150. But there's value. I mean, there's, there, there's good players who come out of, out of the draft after the fifth round every year. And if, let's say, there's – 100 or 150 of these guys who, who would have signed in a normal year for six figures that'll sign for 20, there, there's going to be a scramble for them. Uh, you know, I, I think from the Orioles standpoint, and I know teams are, are kind of preparing, uh, some teams are prepared like videos and recruit, you know, basically recruiting materials because everybody can offer the same bonus for, the, for these guys. I think what the Orioles have to offer is two things. One, um, you know, obviously, you know, Michael Elias and, and, and Sig coming from Houston, have brought over a lot of the technology and, and modernized player, you know, a lot of the modern aspects of player development. And I'm sure they're going to emphasize that to players. Like, look, these are some of the things we do. Look at the success we had in Houston, making guys better. We can make you better. So I think that, I think that's a big selling point Two, you know, honestly having a, a bad major league team right now and having an upcoming, but not elite farm system. If I'm a player and the Orioles are interested in me, and I'm buying into like, hey, look what they're doing to make guys better. This stuff sounds fascinating. I'm going to have a real opportunity to advance with the Orioles. So I would think, you know, again, they can't offer any more money than anybody else is, but I would expect that the Orioles have a chance to do fairly well in the, in the $20,000 game, which will, which will commence on Sunday. Yeah, it's going to be very crowded for the next few drafts. Uh, at some point, it must normalize. And, and the, a couple more, Jim. One is, what's your sense of what Major League Baseball can do if the minor league season's wiped out, as far as player development, I mean, whether it's an expanded Arizona Fall League or several leagues, Florida and Arizona, to at least get some innings and ABs out of your 
out of your upper half prospects? I mean, is that conceivable at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think it hinges on having a major league season, which, you know, Rob Manfred expressed 100% confidence, you know, the first night of the draft in an interview with Tom Berducci that we'd have a season. Um, seems like they're maybe getting a little closer. But assuming we have a season and then that goes off okay and, you know, COVID doesn't come back and, you know, pose a problem, I would suspect we'll see, you know, perhaps even as early as a month into, you know, after a month of major league games go off without a hitch or maybe a little bit later. Um, you know, the fall league thing, I mean, I, I, whatever we have, whether it's expanded fall league or just Florida, Arizona, I think it's going to take place at the team complexes on the backfields. You know, I don't think with, with the revenues down this year that you're going to have a lot of prospects. You might have 18 per, per organization, or maybe you have an older team and a younger team, or maybe some of the older guys are on your expanded major league roster and taxi squad. I mean, we'll have to see how those things work out, but I think we'll see something at the complexes. I'm just thinking this through. The reason I pause is, you know, the fall league, they moved up last year, but it was end of September into October. Well, you know, we're already seeing there's, there's talk. The owners want no part of, of, of baseball being played in November, postseason baseball, because of the fear that the COVID is going to come back in the winter. So my guess is you would want to get your development games played as soon as you could, because what if it comes back in October and wipes out your expanded fall league? So I, I think what we're going to see is you'll see the teams take their best prospects once it's, once they get, you know, all clear, we, we figure out how we're, we're managing this because you have to have innings and in at bats, you know, the at bats, you know, it's not great if Adley Rutschman doesn't get at bats, although he's pretty advanced or, you know, say Gunnar Henderson needs at bats, but what you really need is innings. You can't take Grayson Rodriguez and DL Hall from a hundred to 110 innings and not have them pitch. Or even if they right. pitch, like if they like, they might get, 60 innings this year. Well, if they get 60 innings this year, you probably can't ramp them back up over 100. You know, teams are very careful about increasing the, the workload of their young pitchers and steps. So they're, they're going to have to do something. And, and, you know, you just mentioned this way the draft. I mean, pitching is going to be altered in baseball for three or four years. Like, I, I don't know the effects on older guys because I don't know. Like, like usually when they get to the big leagues, you kind of turn loose. But like, you know, you, you know your, your, your starting pitchers in big leagues are pitching 150-plus innings a season. If we have a 70-game season this year, what are they going to pitch, like 75 innings maybe tops? Can you ramp those guys back up to 150 next year, or is that going to do damage to their arm? Um, so I don't know. And especially with the young players, they need those innings. They need those at-bats. You know, especially for the Orioles, you're not playing for 2020. You're playing for the future. You know, the probably most important player in the organization this year was Adley Rutschman. Um, you know, and Grayson Rodriguez continue to develop and DL Hall and, and these draft guys. So um, we'll, we'll have something. I'm pretty confident, but I think it'll probably be limited to like a team, maybe two teams max worth of prospects for each club. Or, or maybe you have like a, I don't know, like a large roster with a taxi squad of 40 or 45 prospects. And one day you play your older guys and one day you play your younger guys. It'll, it'll, there'll be something because there has to be. But I don't, you know, they, they got to figure out the major league season first. There, there, there has been a lot of talk, and like, I'm pretty confident it will have to happen at spring training complexes. Um, and they'll try to get as many innings or as bats as they can, but it's going to be for select. I, I just don't think you're going to see teams want to have, hey, all 200 of our minor leaguers come in because, A, it's going to be hard to manage, and, and B, just the cost. I, I think it's going to be a pretty limited number. 
from a taxi squad standpoint, you obviously have to keep those guys in shape and ready to go because the risk of injuries when you start a major league season is going to be incredibly high this year. Do you think there's maybe any possibility that you could take somebody like a Rutschman, a Kerstad, a Grayson Rodriguez, a D.L. Hall, somebody like that, and maybe send them to where the taxi squad is just so you can get games in so those taxi squad players that you have maybe don't have as high of a risk of injury? I mean, it's, it's one of the things it's, it's, that I've kind of thought of. Like, do you think there's any reality in that happening? I think that's tough because it just adds more people that you have to keep healthy and, and not get infected and could spread. You know, like the more people you bring in, the greater the risk you have of, of somebody bringing in. I mean, I know they're going to be testing for it, but, I, you know, obviously the more people you bring in, they're exposed to more people, greater risk for people getting infected. I don't – I would be surprised. I mean, maybe like after a month of, of games get going, because I think they're going to be very cautious. Because if, if, if they start a major league season, let's say they start July 10th. I'm just picking a date here about a month from now. And, and guys are getting sick a week in. It's just going to shut it down immediately. So, no, I mean, I, I think you, you could see some teams, you know, even how service time would be handled would be a factor. But you could have some teams say, well, I, 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 again, the service time would be the key. I, I could see the Orioles, if service time were not an issue, perhaps saying, you know what, let's put Adley Rutschman on the taxi squad. And we're not going to throw him to the wolves, but let's let him play once a week or twice a week. And he can work out with our team. And he'll play twice a week against big league pitching. And, you know, teams are going to have deep – you're going to see a lot of triple-A caliber pitchers in the big leagues this year because I think we're going to see guys going shorter uh, amounts of innings into games and using more pitchers with these expanded rosters and taxi squads. Um, That, you know, that might be preferable than having Adley Rutschman do nothing. Um, And, again, if I have to give him service time, (laughs) then they probably don't want to do that because it accelerates his free agency. But I do think you'll see some teams – you know, think about that. And I would assume, you know, I don't know where things stood in spring training, which seems like it was a year ago, but you know, like your Dean Kramers and Michael Bauman's and, yep. you know, Usniel Diaz's who would have been in triple a maybe, uh, will be, you know, part of that expanded big league roster because a, you're going to need players and B, you know, those guys were on the cusp anyway. So, so why not? So I think you'll, you'll see that, but I, I think it'll be interesting because I, I think you're going to have to, it'll be, I don't know how they're going to handle service time on those guys. Like, I don't know if you're going to see teams really want to give, you know, like six guys who might've been triple a, a full year's service time. Cause they're on the taxi squad. Like, and they obviously haven't worked that out yet, but that'll be another, another thing that they will have to figure out. Yeah. I mean, the expectation was the Kramers and the Aikens and the uh, Bruce Zimmerman's of the world and Ryan Mountcastle, they're going to make an appearance around July 1st. Anyway, you might as well, I mean, for, for the fans, I mean, I get the service time aspect, but if you're, uh, there's really no need for the stopgap measures that they had signed at this point because uh, that was to essentially bridge the gap to those guys anyway who are going to come this season. Uh, last one, uh, Jim, uh, next year's draft, we don't know how it's going to look as far as uh, who would, how they, how they uh, select and, and how all that will look um, if it's just based on a porous record, you know, to the best. Uh, but if you are picking at one next year, is Kumar Rocker the odds-on favorite? Um, you know, you could argue he might not even be the best draft pick on his team next year because Jack Leiter was was looking great, and he'll be a draft-eligible sophomore next year. Yeah, I mean, those would be two guys to look at. Um, you know, it's funny. 
that's on my to-do list, but more for Monday and Tuesday was to look ahead at 2021 and I haven't really yet, but yeah, I mean, I, so you could, how, how about Vanderbilt pitcher? Uh, Vanderbilt pitcher. Got it. Odds on favorite to go. Number one would be, be a little safer play there. I think. All right. Well, Jim, we really appreciate it. We know it's been a long road. Uh, thank you so much. Great work on MLB network and all the, uh, the writing and mocks that you've done. So we really appreciate it. No, yeah, no problem. Thanks. It was good talking to you, Brett and, and Jeff. And, uh, you know, things continue to look up for the Orioles. Yeah, it's going to be fun to see. Hopefully you see some baseball soon. Jim Cowles of MLBPipeline.com and MLB Network. Thanks again. Thank you. We cannot thank Jim Cowles enough. You know, it is it is tough to get into that draft grind. He's doing, you know, all kinds of interviews before and after, plus the coverage goes forever. Uh, but, you know, I think it's interesting, Jeff. Uh, if you look at the Orioles' trends in the Michael Elias era, heavy positional talent, as we talked about, heavy big conference talent, and, and a lot up the middle, a lot of shortstops, a lot of center fielders, and, and a catcher, uh, a couple of catchers last draft early. And that's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. Uh, shine away from pitching. I would say the Orioles' pitching stock is good. Eventually, you're going to need to come up with more because that's such a depth area. Uh, guys get hurt often. And also the realities of the American League East. I've seen in my time uh, a lot of damaged egos that could not get over the American League East hump. So you need a lot of guys. Um, but I think from a totality standpoint, and, you, and you've seen most of the Orioles' prospects up close, uh, it, it's probably from a depth standpoint and a high-end standpoint as good as it's been in, in perhaps decades. Pitching is good for the Orioles. There's Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall at the top. I think Dean Kramer is, is really good. And, and I think you can expect most of those guys, I would imagine, to make the major leagues. It's a little harder to say that definitively because Grayson Rodriguez was probably going to the Carolina League this year and D.L. Hall was probably going to go to the Carolina League or Double A this year. So it's a little bit harder uh, to bank on those guys when they haven't really made it to the Double A level yet. But – I guess for me, I thought the Orioles would take some more pitching in this draft because of how deep the college pool of pitching was. And as Jim Callis talked about on the podcast, a lot of pitching doesn't pan out. A lot of guys get hurt and they never make it to the major leagues and they never reach their full potential. The Orioles, uh, though, decided to go more of a position player route, talk about the number of shortstops that they picked because it's the most skilled position on the field. And if it doesn't work out at shortstop, then you can put them at third base, you can put them at second base, right. you can put them in the outfield, first base. There's just so many options of what you can do with a shortstop. And there were a lot of power guys as well that the Orioles decided to go to. We know what Kerstad did in the SEC. Westberg is another guy who can hit for some power. And then Kobe Mayo, he was a 70 grade on a 20 to 80 scout scale as far as power goes from there. There is swing and miss with, with all three of those guys that is associated with that, but it's very obvious that is something that they value. They feel that they can develop hitters, and then maybe the hope is that if you need to go get some pitching, you can do it via trade, um, you can do it via signing free agents, or you can do it on the international market, which is the next big period coming up for the Orioles. Yeah, and it looks like the Orioles are gonna go all in there. Uh, but I'm saying from a totality standpoint, position and pitching, that if you look at this top 10, top 15, top 30, top 50, it is at a decades high uh, talent point. 
And I'm talking about from the depth standpoint and from a high-end standpoint. I'm not just talking about pitching. But if you look at Rutschman, Hall, Rodriguez, Kerstad, Mountcastle, Hayes, Westbrook, Kramer, Bauman, Lowther, Diaz, Henderson, Aiken, Harvey, and right on down the line, I'm not saying they're all making it. Of course that's not true. Most of them won't. But I'm saying from a depth standpoint and a high-end potential standpoint, this is as good as I've seen. I mean, the guys I would put in that 20 or 30 range would be guys who are in that top 10 ranking from just a few years ago. Well, that's the whole thing is the system has taken a massive step in the right direction. And it started with some trades where you, you pick up some different pieces for Machado that, that you, you trade Machado yeah, to the Dodgers all those guys. and you get, and then the same thing is true with, you know, adding a guy like Dylan Tate and Cody Carroll who might be able to help the Orioles now at the Yankees and trading Zach Britton over there. So I agree with you. The amount of impact players is big because in the past, at least when I started in the Orioles system, there were a lot of players where it was, this guy can reach the major leagues. Do I think he's going to do a lot when he gets there? Probably not. But now you have, like you said, impact players at the very top of your system who you can build around. And Heston Kerstad, Michael Elias is pretty excited. And I'm excited too because there is not a guy that exists in the Orioles farm system like him right now. Yeah, it really isn't. Uh, Mount Castle has a lot of power. Uh, hopefully get to see it soon. Uh, but that's a tough commodity to go buy. And you really need to go get it in the draft or through the international sign period. Uh, we know, as Buck Showalter says, they still put a, give a lot of money to guys who can put it where the grass doesn't grow. And that, um, and that's, that will hold true throughout time. So, um, you know, pitching wise, I will say, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm not sure if this is the, the best farm system era pitching. I mean, there was a period and it led to a lot of good years where they were about to go Tillman, Britton, Arietta, Mattis, uh, a lot of high end talent there that were all knocking on the door at the same time. So, uh, but I'm saying the totality of it, uh, it's pretty special right now. So uh, that's what needs to happen. That's what we all know needs to happen. And, and uh, we'll see if these guys pan out. There's no sure thing. I mean, it's the biggest crapshoot of all the drafts. Um, but I enjoyed uh, the interest in this year's draft, given I think you know, I, I, I hate the five rounds, but I also think it makes it easier for fans to follow because I think they get overwhelmed by a 40-round draft. Um, and given what we're going through right now uh, with the pandemic uh, and, and the lack of live sports going on, it was a good opportunity for baseball. And, and the Orioles go get a, a big slugger uh, to put in right field, hopefully. Uh, as uh, Tim Corbin of Vanderbilt says, peppering the warehouse windows for a while. <laughs> I'm excited for Kerstad. He can hit for power. I don't think people know as much how good of an average hitter he was too, especially with some of the adjustments that he made this year, as well as in the summer of last year when he was playing for Team USA. And I think by him hitting for a higher average, it's going to allow for him to hit for better power. And, and Brad Selig, the Orioles domestic scouting supervisor made this point. A conference call after the draft uh, got done on, on Thursday night. When he is getting his pitch and it's in the zone, he's not missing it. So a lot of that swing and miss coming on pitches outside of the zone, and as he continues to refine his approach, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of home runs, a lot of power, and a guy that will probably only get better defensively. And another thing that, that Blaine Knight, who I talked to, pointed out was that his speed is something that the University of Arkansas worked on him with as well. So getting better in every facet, you know how the Orioles, the mantra for them, for pretty much everybody, from players to coaches to managers to player development people, growth mindset. So I think they got one of those in Kirsten too.
Yeah, and congratulations to Mike Elias and his uh, domestic scouting staff and uh, a draft complete, a bizarre one, uh, one that uh, we'll remember for a long time, given the nature of it. But uh, Jeff, really great stuff and going through it all with Jim Callis. Uh, we'll catch up soon, as always, Jeff. I enjoyed it, Brett. We'll talk to you down the road. All right, this has been another edition of Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.